You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Have you ever had this like deep conviction that you needed to do something, but then didn't do it? Everybody just went, "Ah." did we have to go there? Could you have a better lead-in question, Pastor, for us today? I want you to think about this a minute. Here's what I'm not talking about. What I'm not talking about is that Tony Robbins, rah, rah, you know what you need to do? You need to go start some new adventure. You need to go and climb this mountain. You need to go and do this new job. You need to get a new spouse. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I am talking about is like this deep, deep, deep conviction in your soul. God is calling you to start something or to stop something, and you don't necessarily understand all the reasons why or all the ways it's going to work out. You can maybe lots of fear, anxiety, but you know you're supposed to start or stop this thing. If you ever had that happen, and then you didn't do it. Here's what I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about when you feel guilty about something. You know, I I know a lot of people that just had this guilty conscience. A lot of times it comes from the childhood, the way you were raised. And so there's just this gnawing thing in the back of your head. You're not doing enough. You aren't enough. You you know, whatever it is, you failed in this way. Or maybe something messed up there. That's all your fault. I'm not talking about that either. I'm talking about this deep and profound conviction. You have to do something. And then you didn't do it. Now here's the question. What was the consequence of you not doing it? Maybe you don't know. Maybe you're living in the midst of it right now. But I want you to think about this because this is where we're going to go today. So there was a guy, his name was George Mueller. And George Mueller was a great man. He wasn't always a great man. In fact, he would say, according to his own autobiography, that he lived quite the sinful life when he was a young man. At one point, God got his attention and almost immediately thrust him into work for God. He lived in the 1800s, so you won't be able to meet George today, but you can read his writings and testimonies. George quickly became a great man of faith. As a man of faith, he often, often prayed, and God did really cool things. Now, God didn't always do the really big, earth-shattering, moving kinds of things on a daily basis, but his prayer often had something to do with a connection from George's talking to God and God showing up and providing. One of George's most famous stories goes like this. The house mother came in to the office where George was and says, the children are dressed and ready for school, but there is no food for them to eat today. At this point in time, George Mueller had roughly 300 children at the orphanage that he ran. So he asked the mother to take the 300 children into the dining room and have them sit at the table. He thanked God for the food and waited. Could you imagine this moment? 300 children dressed and ready for school. Clearly, all of them have a different background of trauma of some sort. They are now located in this home together. They don't have their biological mom or dad near them for whatever the reason being. They're ready to go to school, and they're hungry. It's been all night since they've eaten. You all have kids. You know what this is like. And George said, take him in, sit him down. In the back of his head, he knows there's no food. So he simply prays and says, God, we thank you for the food that you will provide today. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a knock at the door. It's the baker. And the baker comes in and he says, Mr. Mueller, last night I could not sleep. Somehow I knew that you would need bread this morning. I got up and I baked three batches for you. I will bring it in. A few moments later, another knock at the door. This time it was the milkman. 
His cart had broken down in front of the orphanage. The milk would spoil by the time the wheel was fixed, so he asked George Mueller if he could use some free milk. George smiled at the milkman. Poor guy, he's in the middle of a God story. He doesn't even know it. And the guy brought in 10 large cans of milk. It was just enough to give 300 children something to drink that day. Now, here's what I wonder. Let's take the milkman out for a minute because the poor guy doesn't even know. Like, his poor wheel broke down. He doesn't even realize he is the answer to prayer. But the baker. Now, let's just say it's 2 a.m. and God knocks on the baker's heart. Wakes him up at 2 a.m. And let's just say the baker does what most of us do when God wakes us up at 2 a.m. What in the world am I awake for? I'm going to go to the bathroom and go back to bed. Or maybe, maybe you get some deep, profound conviction, I need to pray, I need to be with the Lord, or whatever it is, and instead you pull out your iPhone, your iPad, you turn the TV on, whatever it is, you think to yourself, oh, I know, I got this project I've got to finish, this thing I was working on, well, it's the perfect time to do it, the kids are in bed, my spouse is in bed, whatever it is, so I'm going to get to work on the thing. And what would have happened to the children that day if the baker hadn't been obedient to what the Lord was calling him to do? You know, the Bible's full of examples of godly men and godly women that God came to, gave them a task, and they followed through and obeyed. And in fact, you and I are here today because of one of those men. Did you know that? I mean, there's many, many, many men and women, but there's one particular man who you could almost point to as the reason why you and I are here today. Did you know that? Now, his name is Paul. That's not where his name started. His name started as Saul. Saul uh, literally means something along the lines of big. Paul means something more along the lines of small. Interesting, isn't it? We're not 100% sure why Paul changed his name, but we think it means something, or he did it something for the reason of when Saul was a young man, he was being trained as a Pharisee. He had the best of the best religious teachings, followed up under a famous rabbi by the name of Gamaliel, and he was trained by the best of the best of the best, and he was important, and he was significant. He was building a name and a reputation for himself, and he was big. Then he met Jesus. His whole world is flipped upside down, and all of a sudden he realized, I'm not that big. I'm not that significant. The God I serve is big, and so he changed his name to Paul, meaning small. Now, that's important because I want to follow his story as we're kind of walking through this material today. Now, <coughs> excuse me, Paul, we're going to just kind of refer to him as Paul, except for the text calls him Saul. I don't want you to be confused, all right? And then later, I'll refer to another Saul from the Old Testament just to fully confuse you today. But Paul is a guy who hates Christians because he's so all in in the Hebrew faith. When this little group of Christian things grows up, he is trying to put it out. We believe because of history, that Paul is probably roughly the age of Jesus, maybe a little bit younger, but he's in that ballpark. So he would have heard, maybe even seen a few things from Jesus, but he is not a believer. In fact, in the early parts of Acts, Paul is overseeing this, uh, this stoning of a man named Stephen. Now, stoning doesn't mean what you would think of today when we say stoning. Stoning in that day is where they would pick up rocks and throw them at a person until they died. And this guy named Stephen is a phenomenal Christian leader, and he, they, they, we see in the stoning Stephen to death, and then they take Stephen's clothing and they lay them at Paul's feet. In other words, he's the ringleader of the stoning. Now, Paul in Acts chapter 9 has just gone to the religious authorities and asked for permission to go into a town called Damascus and have all of the Christians there round up and thrown into prison for their faith. He is fighting as hard as he can to squash this thing, and that's where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 9, verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, 
Saul. Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. First thing, and this is really a side note, but I love these little ADHD moments in my messages. So first thing, it's a side note, but it's a critical side note because this is the third week in a row that I have said now, Jesus is emphatic, I am with you to the very end. I am with you. So whatever you're going through, whatever you're dealing with right now, God is with you. How do we know? Well, just look at the story. You've got Christians being killed, Christians being arrested, thrown in prison, persecuted, and afraid for their faith, and Jesus intercedes on their behalf, and he speaks to Saul, and he doesn't say, why are you doing this to Stephen? Why did you do this to my church? Why are you doing this to my people? He says, why are you doing this to me? Jesus takes personal responsibility for your life here on earth. So when you are in Christ, you belong to him. So when he says, I am with you, to the point where his identity is your identity. This is why we believe as a church, our mission on this earth is very simple. It's to become like Christ. Because when he looks at us, he already sees what we are. All right, that's my little soapbox for a minute. This brings us to week six in experiencing God, or at least I should say reality six. We're in our sixth week here. Reality number six is this. You must make major adjustments in your life to join God in what he is doing. So for all of you watching online, welcome. We're so glad you're here. If you're visiting with us today, it was baby dedication. You're like, I'm gonna come. I have no idea what this pastor's talking about. Let me try to summarize it for you very quickly since this is our second to last week. So here's a little graph that'll walk you through quickly where we've been. The short version is we've challenged our church to pick up the book Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby and Claude King. Highly recommend it. It's not too late for you. Run out today. I met a family today visiting us from another church for family, and he was just moved by last service, and I said, you need to go out, you need to buy the book, because he's going to go deeper than I could go in one message with you. But in short, God is at work in the world around us, all around you right now, in your life, my life, and everybody around us. And he's calling us to join him in his work all over the world. In a perfect world, we would go right into the world following with God. But most of us need a little bit of a detour because God loves us. He's pursuing a relationship with us that is real and personal. So therefore, he invites us to join him in his work around the world. He does that by speaking to us and clarifying what he's up to and what he intends to do with us. That leads us to a crisis of belief because it always requires some sort of adjustment in our life to get in on what God is doing. Stop living my life for me and start living my life for him. But when God does this and we surrender to him, we find ourselves back up where we started. This will be next week when we obey and then experience God in a new and profound way. And we are now finding ourselves at this point, we are at a fork in the road, a critical moment where we must decide, are we going to go with God? And Paul is in that place. He's on the Damascus road, light shines down, hears a voice, terrified. What does it mean, crisis of belief, to come to the end of yourself and realize everything you've been living for is the wrong thing? But God is good. He's not giving up on Paul. Just like he's good and he's not giving up on me and he's not giving up on you. All right, Paul, go into Damascus and wait. Wait for me and I'll tell you what you must do. In the book, Henry Blackaby says this, many of us want God to speak and lead us in his will. We want the excitement of God working through us, but we are loath to make any major adjustments, so we will. 
The Bible reveals that every time God speaks to people about something he wants to do, they have to realign their lives in some way. When God's people are willing to take the necessary actions, God accomplishes his purposes through those he calls. And I want that. And I know you want that. What happens if we don't? What is the alternative if we don't? Well, let's meet another man who's going to have to deal with that. So when Saul is led into Damascus, he can't see. There's something like scales on his eyes we're going to hear about in a minute. He can't see. He's fasting. He doesn't eat or drink for days. And in that time, the Lord speaks to Saul and says, Saul, I'm sending a dude to you by the name of Ananias. He's going to come to you and tell you what you need to do next. But then God goes to Ananias and he says, Ananias, I want you to go to Saul. You're going to find him on this street and in this house. That's pretty cool in and of itself. But Ananias, as you can imagine, does not necessarily want any part of God's will. Are you kidding me, God? The same Saul that's been killing Stephen, the same Saul that's here to arrest me and throw me in prison? Here's his words, Acts chapter 9, verse 13. Lord, Ananias answers, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. He's come here with authority, by the way. Where does the real authority come from? That's been so clear, like throughout everything we've talked about. Authority doesn't come from man. But Ananias is a bit scared of man. You can understand. He has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who are called on your name. In other words, God, are you sure? Here's what, I don't know about you, but I love to do this. I love to advise God about his plans. Now, God, I know you said you want me to go do this. I know, but God, come on, listen to reason for a minute, God. Like, if you could see what I could see, you would totally approach it this way. And God's going, really? But I love this. In spite of Ananias' pushback, Here's God's response to Ananias. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. Pep talk over. That's it. That's like as good as it gets. Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Go. And then he says, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I've often wondered what the purpose of that statement is. Is it maybe for us, the reader, to understand what God's going to do in Saul? Or is that to encourage Ananias? And don't worry about it, he's going to suffer. Oh, why didn't you say so? I'm not sure. I really don't know. Question, what if Ananias doesn't go? What are the options? Are there any examples in the Bible of people not obeying God? Oh, there's lots of them. So for every David, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, Noah, Moses, Abraham, for every single one of those, there's a whole bunch of others too. And you know what? God doesn't do the same thing every time. But let's just take some of these examples. Option A, Ananias says, God, I can't do that. I'm too afraid. For whatever the reason being, I can't follow through. Let's go the Jonah route. So there's this prophet named Jonah. God comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, I want you to go call the Ninevites to repent. Repent means to turn to God, to turn away from your sin and turn to God. Now the Ninevites, the best way to compare them in our day would be like the Al-Qaeda in our day. I know you're like, what? No, really, go look it up. The Israelites hated the Ninevites because of how they treated them in history. They were terrorists to Israelites. But God calls Jonah to go to them and preach a message of repentance. We find out at the end of the book of Jonah, the reason Jonah didn't want to go is because he knew how merciful God was. 
He knew that if he went and preached a message of repentance and the Ninevites turned away from their sin, that God wouldn't destroy them. And he wanted God to destroy them. In fact, at the end of the book, Jonah's sitting on top of a mountain pouting because God forgave them instead of destroying them. And he says, I knew you would do this. That's why I didn't want to go. So Jonah goes the opposite direction of Nineveh. He gets on a ship and God says, "Uh uh-uh, I don't think so. Literally causes this massive storm. Finally, Jonah looks at the crew and he's like, if you guys don't throw me over, we're all gonna die. And they're like, why don't you just jump? I've never understood that. But they toss Jonah over the side and a massive fish, called a whale, I don't care what you want, that's a big goldfish, comes up and swallows, we don't really know that, I made that up, swallows Jonah. And here's the thing, you read it, it's so clear in the Hebrew, it's a little confusing in English sometimes. Jonah is in the belly of the big fish and he is about to die and he knows he's about to die. And in that moment, right before his death, he repents. And then God takes that big old fish and puts him up on land and goes, and Jonah decides to go preach to the Ninevites. Now, what would have happened if Jonah had not obeyed? Here's what I think would have happened, but I don't know because Jonah did. I think Jonah dies in the belly of the big fish. I think that's what happens. So you not obeying God will lead to you dying in the belly of a big fish. That's our lesson for the day. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Good thing I don't live near water. Don't test God. I'm kidding. So, That's one option. Option A, God has to do something tragic in your life to get your attention, to get you back on mission. Option B, maybe God sends somebody else. Now, in this case, he's already told Saul he's sending Ananias, so apparently he's gonna have to name somebody else or go to Saul and say, message got lost in translation. It's not gonna be Ananias, now it's gonna be Joseph or whatever, but I don't think that's the way it's gonna go. See, we play mental games with God, but God already knew what was gonna happen next. Yeah, so? You still have to do whatever God has called you to do. Jonah still chose to either go or not go. And there are plenty of other examples we'll talk about later in the service where people don't obey God and God says, fine. You don't want to follow me? Then I'll do it a different way. Is that what you want for your life? Do you want God to have to work around you instead of with you? Do you want the dryness and the absence and the pain of God saying, fine, then I'll go somewhere else, use somebody else in some other way? Verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Good choice. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, he could see again. He got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Now there's a lot here for me to unpack and I wish I had more time, I don't. I'll probably go a little bit over today, but I think I say that every week. So part of what's happening here is Saul is at his crisis of faith moment and he passes a test. I'm going to go forward with God. I don't know what that means yet, but Ananias shows up and here's the thing, throughout the book of Acts, we see these same three things over and over and over again. Saul has repented, Saul gets baptized, Saul receives the Holy Spirit, and then Saul gets to work. Now, that's the typical pattern we see throughout the book of Acts. That's what people do when they meet Jesus. They either go the other way or they go with him. Saul chooses to go with him. Now, immediately, he spends some time with disciples. And we aren't 100% sure what to do with some of the texts. Like Paul tells us in his writings that he spends like three years with Jesus being taught by him in the desert area. Historians believe that Saul spends roughly a decade somewhere around the Damascus, Tarsus, near his hometown area, probably preaching. But here's the irony of that. Nobody trusts him. 
And you can't blame them, right? I mean, you all know that person, that person who promises you, I'm different, I'm changed, I'm not the same, but they keep acting the same over and over again. Well, that's not Saul's story. Saul keeps trying to tell everybody, I'm trustworthy, you can trust me, I'm different. I met Jesus, he appeared to me on the road. He tells the story over and over and over again, but the people are looking at him like, yeah, how do we know you're not like some covert double agent? Like, you're faking it so you can arrest more of us and hurt more of us. Well, a guy named Barnabas comes along, and Barnabas basically goes to Peter and the apostles, and everybody else says, look, I'm telling you, I've heard this guy's messages, and by the way, at this point, it's been many, many years now, I'm telling you, he is the real deal. And do you know the way he really convinced everybody? His suffering. So the very guy who persecuted Christians becomes the very guy persecuted on behalf of Christians, and there was no greater testimony to his changed life than has changed life. Words are cheap. And here's the thing I think is really fascinating, but I can't make a biblical like, principle out of this. I just think it's fascinating that the very thing Saul did to hurt Christians is the very thing God put him through to redeem people for the faith. And could it be possible that God intends to take your greatest weaknesses and redeem them for the glory of God and the good of others. Again, in the book, Henry Blackaby says this, to get from where you are to where God is requires significant adjustments in your life. These adjustments may relate to your thinking, your circumstances, your relationships, your commitments, your actions, and your beliefs. He says, I have been asked if every adjustment God asks us to make is significant. My response is always, To move from your way of thinking or acting to God's way of thinking or acting will require fundamental adjustments. You can't stay where you are and go with God at the same time. I know this isn't the message anybody wants to hear when they come to church. Where's that message of grace and mercy? Oh, it's abundant. It's just that God's message of mercy and grace is intended to transform you into the likeness of his son. It wasn't just to make you feel better about mercy and grace. See, mercy and grace is required because none of us make it to where God wants us to be without it. But it was fuel. It was everything we need. This is why that same Paul, when he's struggling in his flesh at one point, and we could talk some other time about what it is he's struggling with, but he says, I kept asking for God to take away this temptation of this trial, and his, the response from Jesus was, my grace is sufficient for you. When you are weakest, I am strong. What is God calling you to do that you are running from? Think about this for a minute. What is it that God is asking and requiring of you? Is it a personal decision? Maybe it's something immoral in your life or unethical in your life. Maybe you've been cheating your boss out of work hours and time and effort. Maybe it's your taxes. Maybe it's time with your family or your spouse. Maybe God's called you radically to do something for him and you keep saying, not yet, not yet, not yet. I know this, the message of the kingdom of God is the message, don't miss this, I gotta be clear on this, it's the message of obedience. We are saved by grace through faith, but we are saved for obedience, See, the where everything went wrong for us is in the garden, Adam and Eve didn't obey. Like, 
enjoy the garden, be fruitful and multiply, expand the garden, subdue the earth, rule and reign under my authority, God says. And that, oh, by the way, there's one thing you can't do, stay away from the tree. And they didn't obey. And since then, every Adam and Eve, me and you, since then, have disobeyed. And then Jesus comes along and he says, now go advance my kingdom to the ends of the earth. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to what? Obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. The whole purpose of the kingdom of God is that we're bringing the peace of the rule and the reign of God from heaven to earth. We are bringing heaven to earth through our allegiance and obedience to our king. See, you cannot be a part of what God is doing in the world and be arrogantly disobedient to whatever he's calling you to do. Some of you right now are feeling deeply moved and convicted. To which I want to now encourage you by Paul. Paul plants a church, many of them, but one of the churches he plants is in a town called Corinth. This is where we get the book of First and Second Corinthians. And when he plants this church, he takes a different approach than some of the other churches he's planted. When he goes to the church at Corinth, he says, I didn't come to you with all these displays of power and might and all these other things. No, I came to you humbly. I just came to you to let the Spirit speak through me. But because of that, Everywhere Paul went, false teachers were popping up, but the way the false teachers would try to distract in the churches at Corinth is they would be great teachers and they would divide or they would say, hey, we're these great apostles. Look at all these wonderful things we did. And Paul is now trying to argue with them and say, look, you don't understand. Who is greater than me? But I feel like an idiot for saying that because I'm not boasting. I'm not bragging. I'm nobody. I'm small. I'm not big anymore. Jesus is everything. So when you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 in that range, you find Paul almost having this two-sided argument. He often argues rhetorically where he says, I know you might say this. I would say this. I know I've thought this before, but now I say this. But what we find now is Paul saying, look, here's what they're saying about me. Here's what I'm being accused of. Here's the arrogance they have. But look at my track record. Look at my life. And then it's like he's stepping back and saying, I feel like a fool for saying this. What benefit is there in saying any of these things? Because it's all about Christ. Here's his actual words. I wanted to give you context. So as we read, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Here, he's talking about these super apostles who are out there proclaiming how great they are. Are they servants of Christ? And then he goes, parenthetically, I am out of my mind to even talk like this. In other words, I'm going to let myself enter the flesh for a minute and kind of brag for a second. But listen to how he brags. I am more, more of a servant of Christ. I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. And I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Let's just pause there before we go on to read more of Paul's out of mindness. The 40 lashes minus one. This is an interesting historical little piece. It was a law that the Israelites could not do more than 40 lashes. So they would often do 40 minus one and they would count out loud just in case they counted wrong. They have a backup plan. This is like the reverse of when your kids are counting the Skittles, right? And they count out loud one, two, skip a few, and they end up at 65. Well, they would count out loud. That was like the worst illustration ever, just to make sure they would never go over the number. So we don't have any recording of these kinds of things happening. When did they happen? We believe Paul is describing that 10-year gap in history. You don't want to miss what I'm saying because of what I'm going to bring it to later. But what he's trying to say is in that span, when I was trying to spread the gospel in Tarsus and in Damascus and in my hometown, I would first go into a city, 
he'd preach to the Jews. Then I would preach to the Gentiles. And at every turn, these Jews were persecuting me. They were arresting me. They were throwing me in prison. They were giving me the 40 minus one. Not once, not twice, not three times a lady. Five times they beat me in this way. Then he goes on and he says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Do you hear the transformation in this man? The very man who caused this kind of pain and suffering in others is now carrying the weight of the pain and suffering in himself. But it leaves the question, why? And the only answer I know how to give scripturally is because he met Jesus. And Jesus said, go, make disciples. So Paul said, I have to go. But Paul, do you realize the sacrifice required for you? I do. But I gotta go. Again, in Blackaby says, the second critical turning point is adjusting your life to God. If you choose to make the necessary adjustments, you can go on to obedience. But if you refuse, you could miss what God has in store for your life. Just philosophically for a second, right? Theoretically for a second. What would happen if you don't do what God's asking you to do? Again, we play these mental games. Well, if I don't do it, God's got some other plan. He'll work it out. He's God. He's good. He knows the end from the beginning and blah, 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 right? So I don't have to lose any sleep over it. But what if you not taking that next step, that step of faith, the obedient step, what if it's bigger than you think? There's a guy named Saul in the Old Testament. Again, not to confuse, totally different Saul. And this Saul was the first king of Israel. Remember, Israel asked God for a king, and God says, I'll give you a king, and he chooses Saul. And everything looks great at first, except that it doesn't take long into the story, and Saul's heart is not for God. By the time we get to 1 Samuel 13, God has told Saul, I want you to go to war, I want you to conquer this army and destroy all of them. And Saul keeps some of them, keeps some of the possessions, and he takes uh, the king and he pulls him aside. And Samuel shows up on the scene, he's like, Saul, what are you doing? I think that would be 1 Samuel 15. I think I got my stories mixed up. But he shows up at 1 Samuel 13 and, and, and God has told him exactly what to do and Saul can't wait for Samuel. So Saul goes ahead and offers a sacrifice that he's not supposed to offer. Only the priest Samuel can offer it. But Saul can't wait for Samuel. He's got to motivate the troops and he's got to get everybody on his side. And this crazy thing happens. Samuel shows up and he says, again, Saul, what have you done? Take a look, 1 Samuel, you don't have to, this isn't on the screen. If you know where this is in the Bible, otherwise I'll read it to you. 1 Samuel 13, verse 13. Samuel shows up and says, you've done a foolish thing. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And he's appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. 
This text has often baffled me. Here's why. And this may be way too deep for some of you today, so it's okay. Just like, let this one go over your head and hang on to the rest of what I say, all right? But some of you eat this up, all right? We know that the Messiah had to come from the tribe of Judah, but Saul didn't come from the tribe of Judah, but David came from the tribe of Judah. Are you with me? Somehow, if Saul would have been faithful, God would have connected Jesus to his story anyway, but because Saul did not obey, God disconnected him from the story and inserted King David. Now, here's a question. Did David ever fall? Oh, you bet. More than once. In a colossal way, at one point, when he committed adultery with one of his best friend's wives and then to cover up his sin, had his friend murdered, and then God sent the prophet Nathaniel or Nathan to David and said, David, how dare you? So David has a soul moment. Am I going to repent or am I going to continue in my sin? And David chose to repent fasting and praying and weeping before the Lord. And the Lord restored him to his kingship and made him the king whereby we connect Jesus to over and over again in the gospels. He is a king like David, but better. See, obedience has to do with you getting your life realigned to the Father and obeying him in whatever he's called you to do, no matter the cost. I gotta connect just a few more dots for you. This is the next one I have to connect in order for the last one to make sense. So Paul gets convicted by God that he is to go to Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 20, he stops by and gathers the Ephesian elders together. And he tells them, I need to go to Jerusalem. But the elders of the church in Ephesus start weeping. They're bawling. They're like, don't go. Don't go, Paul. It's not going to go well for you. When you go back to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest you. They're going to put you in prison. That's what always happens. Don't go. And Paul says, well, here's the conversation. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. From Miletus, that's a town, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me the prison and hardship are facing me. In other words, the Spirit has convicted me. I must go. Don't go, it's gonna hurt, there's gonna be suffering. I gotta go. But Paul, don't you understand? I fully understand. I don't know what it's gonna look like, but God said, go. I have to go. Maybe you get nothing out of this but this. Following God is not a promise of an easy task. Which leader in the Bible had an easy task? Abraham? Why don't you leave your family and go to a land? I'll tell you what it is when we get there. Moses, hey, you're gonna lead a bunch of slaves to do a desert for 40 years. You'll die there. Noah, I wanna have you build a really big boat, except the only people gonna make it are animals, your family, and you're gonna watch everybody else die. Peter, you're gonna start out as a fisherman. You're gonna fish for men, and then you're gonna be hung upside down. Paul, I'm gonna send you into Jerusalem where you're gonna be arrested and put in prison. Name one leader in the Bible who's given an easy task. Name one. I don't know any. Following God is not a promise of an easy task. It's rather 
the promise of the presence of a faithful God. Henry Blackaby says it this way. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you have no choice. You will have to make significant alterations in your life. Following your master means going where he goes. Until you are ready to make any change necessary to follow and obey what God has said, you will be of little use to God. Your greatest difficulty in following God may come at this point. So, what in your life needs to change so that you can do what God has asked you to do? Let me close with this. Um, I was so moved by this text like two years ago that I showed up on Sunday and I cried my way through the whole sermon and then I just went back and listened to it like six months ago and I have no idea what I was saying. So I'm gonna give it another chance here in two minutes or less and see if I could do justice this time. This guy named Paul is so transformed by the gospel that he writes a book called Romans to the church in Rome, except he's never been to them before. And he's writing to them to encourage them in their faith and to build them up and to teach them. And he's saying to them, by the time we get to the end of Romans 8, it's powerful, I think probably the best chapter in the whole Bible. It's just personal opinion. But in Romans 8, he basically says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not your past, not your sins, not your weaknesses, not your failures, not your struggles. If you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. And then he concludes Romans 8 with the most powerful passage of all. And neither height nor death, neither angels nor demons, nor nothing else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But then he gets into Romans 9, following this profound sermon he just put out there. It's like, man, go all in with God because nothing can hold you back. When God is for you, who can be against you? And then he says in Romans 9 verse 1, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confers it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. From them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. And you're like, Pastor, I didn't get it. I know you didn't. Because I didn't either until about a year and a half ago or so until I was listening to a sermon by David Platt and it floored me. I was cleaning my house next to my wife with headphones in and I just start crying like a baby. She's like, you all right? I'm like, don't talk to me right now. Like God was just ruining me. And here's why. Because if you didn't get what Paul just said, it's the completion of his transformation. Even though my people don't trust me, even though my people arrest me, have me beaten and whipped and stoned to death and thrown in prison and starved, even though my people have done that to me, if it were possible, I would trade my salvation for them. I would literally be cut off from Christ that they might know him and be saved. Does your heart burn for those who are lost the way that Paul's does? Because I think we spend way too much time in Christian circles arguing about things that are not important. While the world is dying and going to hell. And Paul says, I would give everything for them to be saved, but I can't. 
Only one, Jesus Christ, gave up his life so that all may be saved. Me dying would do nothing to change their salvation. But since I can't trade my salvation for their salvation, here's what I'll do. I'll trade my life. I'll give up everything. I'll give up money. I'll give up possessions. I'll give up time. I'll give up pain. I'll give up whatever it takes that just a few might come to know the all-surpassing greatness of the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I want to give my life to that. And I don't want to be a church on the last day that stands before our Heavenly Father and has him look at us like Matthew 25 and say, okay, I gave you a bunch of talents. What'd you do with them? Did you bury them in the ground or did you go take a chance? I want to stand before my Father on the last day with anybody who called Kingsway home and stand there together with our shirts on, all matching. They'll be white, don't worry about it. And we're going to stand there and say, Father, here's what we have with what you gave us. And hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm gonna pray that God does something in you right now. He will not let you leave until you have made a decision of the will to obey him and whatever he's telling you to do. But I gotta tell you, if you don't wanna pray this prayer, you might as well stick your fingers in your ears right now. Because if you pray this prayer, God will move, and it might just be terrifying if he does. Father, God, right now, I pray for your spirit to go before us in this place. Stir in the hearts of every man, woman, and child, whatever your message is. God, for some, you are speaking a message right now. And you are calling them to stop gossiping and backbiting and devouring. To start speaking only words that bring life. Father, there are some in this place right now, and they've been stealing from their company. Maybe like Paul said, you're telling them, stop taking money and time. You go get a second job, a fifth job, a hundredth job, whatever you gotta do so that you can actually contribute to the body of Christ. There's some in this place right now, God. And they are not being faithful in their commitments to their spouse. You are telling them to stop. Do whatever has to be done to cut it off and to quit God, there are some in this place who have heard you boldly speak to them. You have called them to go with you to some ministry or mission field somewhere. And they haven't. And they've stayed seated. They've sat on the sidelines. They've watched everybody else do it. And you say it over and over and over again. God, may your voice speak so loud, so clear. Whatever is holding them back, may they finally cut it off and go all in. There are tens of thousands of people around our church. They don't know you. God, would you just take some hundreds of people here who love you and use us. 
God, we can't trade our salvation for theirs, but we could trade our lives, our gifts, our resources, our money, our time. God, would you stir in us that we would be a sacrificial people, people like Paul, better yet, people like Jesus. And God, I pray your message, your spirit, speak whatever you need to speak on behalf of each of us today. But God, please don't let us leave here today without surrendering to you. We ask all this in the powerful name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and all God's people say.